Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Well, I promised everyone a dramatic conclusion. Now what I promised everyone, I said that we are going to to finish this and we're going to bring this train back to the station, bring it back to a dramatic conclusion. Well, I don't know how dramatic it's been, but it's definitely not gone as planned. If you were listening to the last live broadcast, well, everything just ended abruptly because, well, the power went out. Yes, I was sitting here. We were reviewing the sermon that we've now been reviewing for This is part three. So in the previous two parts, we've been reviewing a sermon. And as we were reviewing that sermon, everything was, I mean, the sermon got really weird and took a very weird turn, which we're going to back up and hear that very, very weird turn. Like it is, it is just, I'm still kind of baffled by it. And I'm hoping that's not the dramatic conclusion because it will, it won't be that dramatic. But right there, when I'm sitting there processing this very strange turn and the sermon that we're reviewing, boom, all the lights go off and I'm like, no, 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 no. And I looked down and the indicator turned red and then boom, it told me it was reconnecting. And then I realized that, well, we had lost all power up, which means all internet, everything was down, everything was finished. And, uh, so yes, that happened, but you know what? There's nothing I could do. I could try to record part three and then try to go place it at the end of part two. And maybe that would be more professional, but I, what happened is what happened. The power went off. I have no control over that. So let's just make this a part three and say, welcome back everyone. What a crazy sermon we have been listening to just, just to fill you in because we always have new people tuning in. Let me explain what happened. All right. Someone in our Discord channel posted a sermon on uh, May the 12th, 20, uh, May, on May the, tw- May the 12th, 2022. And the name of the sermon is Compelled, Speaking and Living the Gospel. It was preached by Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. And this was preached at Black Hawk Church in um, Wisconsin. Okay. We've gone, we talked a little bit about the church. The Bible project is very influential. It's everywhere. It's all over the internet. So we, we talked a little bit about the Bible project and the fact that this is a sermon from someone so intimately involved and connected with the Bible project, as some person described him, he is the Bible project guy. So he, he's very much a part of this. Um, and so if he's preaching something that, well, raises some serious theological questions, well, that that's that's pretty significant, right? I mean, because, well, the Bible project is very influential. But when we remember, when I review sermons, I don't know what to expect. This one, someone gave me kind of a hint that there could be a problem, but I don't listen to them in advance. We listen to them in real time because then it's more organic. It's my, my, my reactions are not rehearsed. So we started working through this sermon and it's been kind of confu- it's been kind of frustrating because first there's basically there's been I'm going to call this that in a roundabout well we're going to so far this is what we've received two separate sermons and a commercial and I'm not joking 
we've had a complete disconnect. He starts the sermon off with really trying to preach the idea that you and I should be compelled because he's preaching this in a, during a sermon series called Compelled. So he felt compelled to say something that would fit with the theme, right? So he's been asked to preach while the church is in the middle of a teaching series called Compelled, and he feels that he, again, compelled, that he has to say something about being compelled because that's the sermon series which he's preaching during. Instead of just saying, hey, this has nothing to do with your sermon series. I'm going to do something separate. No, 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 no. This has to somehow fit in. So what he does is the first uh, first 14, 15 minutes, he, now, now what he talks about is very important and very very convicting and and could lead to some very interesting discussions. But he basically says, look, because of the love of God, because of God loving us, we should be compelled to just naturally talk about the things of God because we love him. That you naturally talk about the things you love. You No one has to try to force you to do it. No one has to try to manipulate you to do it. You just naturally talk about the things you love. And so to illustrate this, he started talking about tacos, that there's this awesome place in Portland, Oregon, that sells the best tacos in the world. And he started talking about it. He showed pictures of the restaurants. He showed pictures of the line, of the line outside and just how amazing they were. And which is, which again, is an appropriate illustration because he wants us to understand that we should just naturally talk about Jesus. Jesus and the things of God, because it should just, because that's what we love the most. Um, He doesn't, so that's really kind of the thesis of the first half of the sermon. You should naturally want to talk about the things of God because you love Jesus the most. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you spiritually. Okay. That, that's, that's a, a, a great, I mean, it could have just make it, he could have just made it a sermon in and of itself, but he didn't. So that, that's where we're driving. In a sense, that's the road we're driving. Hey, we should be compelled to talk about Jesus because we love him. All right. Sounds good. And then all of a sudden he grabs the steering wheel, yanks it to the right, a hard right. The car almost flips. And then all of a sudden we turn away from that road and now we're on a different road. And now this road, this sermon, it's almost sermon number two is, hey guys, There's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion, a lot of misrepresentations about what the gospel is and what the the, the main focus of the Bible is all about. So what I'm going to do in my sermon today, so now this is like sermon number two, we're going to talk about one, one such misrepresentation, one such mischaracterization about the Bible and about the gospel, all right? So he first gives us the misrepresentation of that he wants to try to debunk or correct. And this misrepresentation, the way he describes it is this. Here, here's earth, and then he draws a line. Here's our life on earth. Now, and, and according to him, there's two major concepts here. If that, if we do enough right things, or if we do enough wrong things, that will determine when our life on earth ends, whether we go to heaven or hell. Now, well, that does need to be debunked because that's a very works-based system. All right, so, so far, so good, right? And you think the way you would debunk that would be simply that we are not saved on the basis of our work, we are saved on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You would talk uh, about things like the imputed righteousness of Christ, you would talk about uh, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You, you, you think that's that's the direction you would go to correct that. However, 
He doesn't go in that direction to correct it, which makes it even more bizarre. But also he says that here's, here's our life on earth. And on this earth, if we believe the right things, we go to heaven. If we believe the wrong things, we go to hell. And, he, and he's saying that this is a mischaracterization, a misrepresentation of the gospel. But that's a little concerning, right? Because isn't one of the basic elements of Christianity, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't trust in his finished sacrifice, you are not saved. So I don't know what you would do to correct that. I, I don't know. He doesn't really do much to correct it because all he, after he gave this misrepresentation, he read two verses in the gospel of Mark. Two, two verses in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm just going to read them again because I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. And it's just, it's just totally bizarre. So, because if those are the misrepresentations, you think you would really start going through the gospel, the, the, the Bible to demonstrate how these, these things are false. But these are the only two verses he read. Uh, in uh, the, the Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I, well, I guess he reads three verses. He reads verse two. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. And his simple, his simple focus here is the Bible is about the gospel. And this gospel was something that even the prophets talked about. All right. So it's about the gospel. Okay. Now he's already demonstrated that a wrong understanding of the gospel is now he doesn't give me a verse that really defines the gospel here just like the gospel is the thing the bible's about and it's been talked about in the past now the wrong idea of the gospel is that we live our life here on this earth if we do the right things we go to heaven if we do the wrong things we go to hell if we believe the right things we go to heaven if we believe the wrong things go to hell and according to him that's incorrect so he reads mark 1 verses 1 through 2 and then he jumps to 15 the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And he says, what is the gospel? The gospel is the kingdom is at hand. So he goes through this really lengthy idea to say, basically, the gospel is the, uh, the, the kingdom of God that had come in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God that is here, ruling and reigning, I guess, on earth now in some way, shape, or form. And then he goes on to discuss that the whole message of the Bible is reuniting heaven and earth. That's what the whole message of the Bible is. Now, remember, his thesis here is that there is a false gospel out there. There's a wrong understanding of the gospel. Well, if it's a wrong understanding of the gospel, that would be a false gospel, right? I don't think he uses the word false gospel, but that's how we would have to define it. And again, he doesn't go say, well, hey, some people believe you're saved by what you do. Here's the scriptures that teach you the gospel of, of Christ and that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the finished work of Christ alone, and talk about imputed righteousness. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even mention the doctrine of imputation. It's, it's, it's really bizarre. So he's not yet really given us, other than I guess the true gospel is the kingdom of God on earth. That, that's the true gospel. And the true gospel is, or the message of the Bible is reuniting heaven and earth. It, it's really like, so, I hasn't even explained it. Then, in the, so those, those are the two sermons. In the middle of this second sermon, he does play a video that he thinks clearly articulates 
these messages that I've just tried to to relate to you. And then it gets really weird because we've got like 15 minutes left. He spent 15 minutes on a completely unrelated sermon. Now he spent this time trying to give us the thesis that there's a wrong way of understanding the gospel. Here's the correct way. But I don't know if his supposed correct way really fixes the wrong way. I don't even... It just, I'm just so confused by what he's doing, but then things get weird. So we have two sermons and then this happens and he he just plays this video that he thinks somehow, I guess, fixes this misunderstanding of the gospel. And then this happens and I'm not making this up. You're going to hear it. You heard it in the last broadcast, but we got to play this again. This is just, this is just crazy. Here's what happens. This is in the middle of the sermon. This is 28 minutes and 24 seconds into a sermon. He does this. So that, the video is one example of a, of a project that I'm working on. You saw the name at the end there called The Bible Project. And it's with a, a friend from college, actually, uh, John, who is the other voice. And uh, we've uh, started uh, a, a year ago, well, two years ago, but we released it a year ago, um, a non-profit creative studio that's creating animated shorts about the Bible and, and Christian theology and so on. And um, we, it all lives on YouTube, which is this thing that the kids are doing these days or whatever. <laughs> so, anyway, so YouTube, and uh, it lives on YouTube, and you could just Google the Bible Project or whatever. And we've, we're making lots of videos. There's a whole bunch. You can just go binge and watch them all if you want. And Okay, so this already gets weird, right? Because you're... You're, you're 29 minutes, or now, now we're you're 29 minutes, 28, 29 minutes into your sermon. Now remember, the thesis here is supposed to be, look, there's a wrong understanding of the gospel, and I'm here to clarify it. I'm here to fix it. And we, if you look at Galatians 1, you know how serious it is to get the gospel wrong. If you have a wrong gospel, well, then it's a false gospel, and anathema, anyone who brings a false gospel is damned. It's serious warnings in Galatians. But in somehow... In the middle of supposedly trying to fix the wrong understanding, he takes time to promote, hey, we're doing a thing called the Bible Project, and you can hop on YouTube, and you can watch all of our videos. All right, that's a little weird, because you could have promoted it at the beginning, you could have promoted it at the end. Why Why in the 29-minute mark, you just stop to say, hey, did you like that video? Well, we've made like 60 videos. Hop on YouTube and Google the Bible Project and you can watch all of our videos. It just seems weird. It would be like me in the middle of a sermon saying, hey, guys, I have this podcast called Theology Central. Like, it would just seem weird, but it gets weirder, right? That's already kind of just like, what we... I think you're trying to fix the, the wrong understanding of the gospel. All you've given us is basically three verses. You, you've played a video that you guys made. So in the middle of a sermon, think about it this way. In the middle of the sermon, to correct the false gospel, he turns to the authority of a video he made to give us a right understanding of the gospel. I, I, I'm, still trying to, I'm still trying to process everything here. But then... This happens. So there he's promoting, hey, our videos are on YouTube. They're free. Just Google them. All right. Then then it turns into this. And uh, we're going to make about 60 more in, in the next 18 months here. And we're really excited. We're making a video for each book of the Bible showing its design, but also how it all unites into the unified story of the Bible. And then we're also creating videos that take like an idea 
like heaven or God's holiness or the Messiah or something, and we follow it from page one all the way through to the last page of the Bible, showing how it's all one, one unified story. Um, and the fun thing about it is that the, the heart of the whole thing was to make them and just give them away for free to every, the whole world, right, through YouTube. And um, so, so that's awesome. So we're doing that. They're not free to make, however. And so this is our great experiment, is that we said if people find them valuable— we'll ask them to help us make them. And so that's what's happening. So, you know, some of you might be feeling manipulated right now. I feel manipulated by myself right now. So basically, let's just get right to it. If you want us to make more videos, give us money. <laughs> and we'll make a lot more videos. And it's not, it doesn't go to me. I donate my time. Um, it goes to the artists, the, the six artists who are just churning, illustrators, animators, and they need to raise their families, but they've, God's given them talents to make this stuff, and it's awesome. So help us make them. If you want more people to see them, help us make them, and we'll make another one. And go to the website. There you go. My commercial's over. It's awesome. My, my commercial is over. Now, he, his next words are, that's awkward. Yeah, it's awkward. The whole thing is awkward. You're, you're supposed to be trying to give us a correct understanding of the gospel, and you just took like three to four minutes of your sermon time to promote your, your, your YouTube channel, your videos, and ask for money. And it, I, I, I'm just baffled. Like, you could have done that at the end. You could have done that at the end. Hey, remember in the sermon I showed you that video? Well, let me tell you a little bit about that project right here at the end. You could have done it then, right? But, I mean, why don't you just stop the entire sermon and take an offering at this point? I mean, it's just the whole thing is... Really, if you like our videos, give us money. And then he says that's awkward. Yes, it's awkward. I, 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 I've, I don't even have words for it. So we've had two, we've basically, we've had two sermons, a commercial, and now we've got like less than 13 minutes left, about 13 minutes left for him to bring this to some kind of, I'm hoping a dramatic conclusion. I'm hoping. I don't know if it's going to be a dramatic conclusion, but the whole thing has been interesting. So here we go. Well, we're, let's see where, where, where I don't even know what to say. I don't even know where it's going to go. Who, I was not expecting that, hey, we basically get two sermons and then in the middle of, of the second sermon, we get a commercial. I, I okay, here, here we go. Great. Over. Okay. So, so let's talk about this. This is more interesting. So. So, so what I'm saying is the story of the Bible is the story about how heaven and earth got ripped apart and that that was not God's will. That's something about th that happened in the story that went wrong, right? So God... Okay, now wait a minute. All right. Heaven and earth got ripped apart and that wasn't God's will. Now, I know this is not the theological point that he's trying to make in his sermon, but I would like to raise my hand and go, so God did know it was going to happen? God did know it was going to happen and could, and then when he saw that it was getting ready to happen, he, he stopped it from like, I guess some questions because it would be like, okay, wait a minute, is God all knowing? So when God created the world, did he not know heaven and earth was going to get ripped apart? Number two, the person that was very instrumental in bringing in the temptation, wasn't that Satan? Did he not create Satan? Could he not have kept Satan? Could he not have destroyed Satan? Could he have not kept Satan out of the garden? The minute Adam and Eve sinned, could he not have just stepped in, killed them, 
and just stopped everything or started over? Like, to say it's not God's will, you've got to clarify, because it's this idea that, like, there, there's this all-knowing, know, all-powerful God, and he's like, no, 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 don't do it. It's not, no, it's not my will. Or somehow, is this all a part of God's sovereign plan? People don't like it to be a part of God's will, but at you... Does, is God, is, is he in charge? Is he in control? Did he lose control? Did he create everything and that quickly everything spiraled out of control and he lost the, the unity between heaven and earth and he spent all of this time trying to fix it? Like I, Christians just say sometimes the weirdest things and you're just like, wait a minute. So God didn't know? God did know. God could stop it. God couldn't stop it I, I, you, because, because this comes down to understanding the God we're talking about. Is, was your God not, know, did he, does he not know everything? So he's not all knowing. And is your God not all powerful? And if, you got, if your God is not all knowing and not all powerful, I have some serious questions that maybe we're not worshiping the same God. Right? So he just, he just, it wasn't God's will. He just throws that out there. Okay, so let's continue. God, God wants to partner and rule his good world together with these dignified, image-bearing human beings. And as you know, you saw in the funny scene right there, that, that goes wrong. Not because something was wrong in the way God set up the deal. It's because something went wrong inside of human beings. All right, so something went wrong, not in the way God set up everything, but something went wrong inside human beings. Now, again, did God know something was going to go wrong in the very people he created? Like, I mean, sometimes I don't think Christians even try to grapple with some of the issues. It's just really weird. Like, it's like Christians do everything they can. God, look, I just want you to know, God had nothing to do with this. God was just as much caught off guard by this as you were. God is just, he, he's been wringing his hands about this the entire time. He didn't, he's like, this had nothing to do with God. It's just, hey, these people I made, I, I don't know what happened. So you, you, you basically are arguing that God is not all knowing. It's basically what's being argued here. I know that that's not the point, but it, put it this way. It's at least being implied. Let's see if he, if he cleans this up and, and fixes what supposedly the real gospel is. Right? There's this, this urge, this urge to not trust God's definition of good and evil and to, and to, to seize autonomy and independence and to define good and evil as I see fit and define it for, for ourselves. And here's what's crucially important, and this is a very simple way to think about communicating this and why this story is wrong. If you look at the first sentence of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God made heavens and... What does it not say? It doesn't say, in the beginning, God made heaven and earth and hell. God didn't make, whatever hell is, God didn't make it. It's okay, wait a minute. In Genesis 1, because it says God created heaven and earth, and it did not say he created hell, God did not make hell. 
God did not make hell. Wow. Okay. So someone else made hell. And God can't get rid of it. God can't close it down. God can't. I, I, okay. I, I've got to see where this is going to go. It's nowhere to be found on page one of your Bible, right? What God made is heaven and earth. And what does God think about it? It's, it's very good. It's very good. So whatever hell is, it comes into the story later. Okay. God saw that it was good. Sin entered into the world. He obviously can't see everything as good now because everything is corrupted by sin. But but he's saying because whatever hell is, like he can't even define what hell is. Whatever hell could be, whatever hell is, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it shows up later in the story. So God did not make it. God did not create it. That seems to be where we're going here. So we seem to have possibly that what he... I'm not saying this is what he's intending to do, but he's seemingly creating the idea that the true gospel is a story of a God who's not all-knowing, who's not all-powerful, who did not create hell, <laughs> who bringing heaven and earth together. He's, he's, uh, okay. And if you're familiar with the story, how it works, hell or evil, or sin, various names that it's called in the Bible, is something. So hell is called evil and sin? Is hell ever called evil and sin? Isn't sin something, he, he just threw, threw those three terms together. Hell, evil, and sin as all being synonymous. I'm I'm getting more confused by the second. That humans have created by our decision to seize autonomy from God. So humans created hell by our desire for autonomy. And where did that desire come from? Did it not come from our depravity that we're born with? Or is he, is he, is he, I wonder if he believes in total depravity. I'm getting really perplexed here. So God did not create hell. We created hell. We created. And hell is identified by three terms, hell, sin, and evil. Now, remember, he's not quoting any script. He's only quoted two, three scriptures in the entire sermon that he took time out to have a commercial in. Um, okay, I... I don't know what to, oh, we just got to let this go. We just got to let this conclude. I, I don't, I have no idea where this is going, but I'm getting, I'm literally getting more concerned by the second. Now, how do I know that hell is an appropriate word to talk about this? Jesus's brother, Jesus's brother wrote a letter that's in, a, in your Bible, right? It's called the letter of James. It's very interesting. And Jesus's brother, who he hung out with Jesus a lot. I'm, I'm bound to trust the man when he says he's representing the teachings of Jesus. James talks about the power, in chapter 3, he talks about the power of the, the tongue and how the human tongue has the power to, to bless and praise God 
the creator, but at the same time, the human tongue has the ability to gossip about people and to tear down their character and to speak ill and poorly of them. And James says this, it's flabbergasting. He says, when humans do that with their tongues, he says their tongues are lit on fire by hell. Are you with me? Now, what are the implications of that? The implications that hell isn't just something about like the end of the game. Hell is a reality that is present now. It's a reality that humans unleash on each other and on God's good world to ruin and destroy relationships. And All right, so hell is a reality that we unleash on the world. All right, and he's basing this off a verse in James. Notice he didn't even, I don't think he even gave us the reference. I don't even think he gave us a reference. Let me look, I uh, see, I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible app really quick. Uh, because he didn't even, I don't think he even gave us the reference in any way, shape, or form. All right, I'm going to, I'm just going to do search. No, I don't want to search Mark. I want to search the whole thing. Okay, I'm going to do a search for hell. Okay. Um, is my search is the whole Bible. I'm just going to go to the New Testament. All right, here we go. So, James 3, 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. Seemingly that it is, this thing, it is set on fire of hell. Let's see how other translations handle this. Let's see how other translations handle this. I got one just right here, James 3, 6. Um, James 3, 6, and the tongue is a fire, the tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members, it stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell, seemingly to say that hell, right, seems to, that our tongue is influenced by hell, which seems, so I'm, I'm going to see here. I'm going to do something, James 3, 6. I'm going to look this up in every English translation on earth. Okay, let's see here. I've got them all right here. Let's look them all up. Okay, so the New International, It's uh, speaking of the tongue, itself is set on fire by hell. New Living, it, uh, for, it, for it is set on fire by hell itself. ESV, set on fire by hell. Um, Berean Study Bible, itself set on fire by hell. Uh, Berean Literal Bible, itself being set on fire by, by Gehenna. All right. Uh, so none of these saying that, they're saying that hell is what we unleash. And this is saying that, no, our tongue is set on fire by hell. He, he doesn't even seem to explain where he gets this. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to look at some commentaries here. He doesn't do any explaining where he's deriving this, this uh, concept. Let's see here if I'm finding anything here. Um, okay, here. Uh, okay. Okay, that's not very helpful. I'm going to look up parallel commentaries. That's not helpful. Uh, okay, 
It is, it, uh, it inflameth us and we have the same influence on those who came after us. And it is set on fa- fire of hell. Put here, f- put here for the devil as by a like, uh, heaven is put for God. Satan influences the heart and its wickedness overflows the tongue and tends by its fatal consequences. In other words, the idea is that hell is for Satan. And so therefore the, the tongue is set on fire by the influence of Satan or evil or ungodliness that would flow from Satan seems to be the idea that they take there with it. Let's see if another commentary here. Okay. And is set on fire of hell. It is represented as a place where fire continually burns. The idea here is that, is that that which causes the tongue to do so much evil derives its origin from hell. Nothing could better characterize much of that which the tongue does than to say that it has its origin in hell and has the spirit which reigns there, the very spirit of the world of fire and wickedness, a spirit of falsehood, slander, blasphemy, and pollution seems to inspire the tongue. He's reading it as like our tongue unleashes hell or we unleash hell. And this is saying from all the commentaries and the way it's translated that no, our tongue is influenced by hell and all that would reside there and all that it represents. So I I don't, he clearly seems not to want hell to be a place. He clearly doesn't want hell to be a place. Hell, he wants hell to be an influence, it seems. Um, and we unleash hell. Uh, we don't go to hell. We unleash hell is what he seems to be saying. Let, let, he's got just a few minutes left. Let's see if he clarifies this in any way, shape, or form. To destroy people. Hell is something that we have created on earth. And God hates hell. Hell is something we have created on earth. Hell is not something God created. It's not a place. It's something that we have created. It's something that we have unleashed. So the the true gospel can't be about saving us from not going to hell because hell is something here on earth. The gospel is reuniting heaven and earth together, which would eliminate hell on earth. I guess that's what he's He's saying, I, I mean, he's got just a few minutes. I'm hoping he just makes a, what he needs to do is he needs to give a dogmatic, clear, succinct summary of what the gospel that he is saying we're supposed to believe is. Since he's saying that the other one is false, he's got to give us a clear one. I'm hoping he does that in the next few minutes. And he, the story of the Bible is a story about God wanting to heal his world and get the hell out of earth. Are you with me? That's the story of the Bible. It's God hates hell because what it, hell is about the unleashing of selfishness and evil and the breakdown and the degrading of dignified, image-bearing human beings. So the, so the gospel is God wanting to get hell off earth or out of earth. God wants to get hell out of earth. Isn't it weird that because he, he kind of used hell in a, in a kind of a, a, a certain way that everyone in the church, I don't know if you can hear the crowd, <laughs> kind of a nervous laughter. Sometimes it feels like it's junior high kids. Okay, look, my issue is if you have nervous laughter, your nervous laughter should be about his entire presentation at this point. Uh, but just because someone possibly used a word wrong, then everyone, 
Okay, the issue is the doctrine here first and foremost. Now, we could talk about what he's trying to say here, but but he really believed that hell is just something here on earth, something that we have unleashed. It's the, it's... It's how we negatively treat people. It's just a, it's just the things we do. And God, the gospel is God to get hell out of the earth. It's hell is not a place that we go to. So it, this seems to completely deny the existence of an e- eternal place called hell where people will suffer. And it seems to completely, obviously not even addressing, does hell get placed into the lake of fire? Or is that a similar, like, how do, how do we understand all of those, those things? He seems not even to be willing to deal with it. And please note, he's not going to any scriptures that would talk about, well, someone in hell lifting up their eyes. He doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be addressing any of the verses because he's reduced hell to something that we create. It's not a place. It's something we have created here on earth by the way we unleash negative, bad things and we treat people horribly. That's what hell is. And the book of Genesis tells the story of Genesis chapters 3 through 11, known as the story of the, the fall. But that's what's happening. It's humans unleashing hell on earth. And God hates it because he loves his good world. And he loves human beings who are made in his image. That's what the story of the Bible is. And Jesus comes onto the scene announcing good news. The time has come and heaven is here to invade earth and to confront evil. And just start reading through the gospel of Mark and what will you see Jesus doing? You will see him confronting hell and its disastrous effects on human beings. And it takes the form of him casting evil, personal spiritual evil, out of people. It it has to do with Jesus confronting the breakdown of human relationships. Go go to the Gospel of Matthew and listen to how Jesus talks about hell. And here's, here's the context in which Jesus mentions hell. Jesus hates hell, and he hates what hell does to human beings, and he hates where it leads human beings on a path. So Jesus... So here's something we can all agree on, and Jesus would agree with us. We can all agree that the sexual abuse of children for money is wrong and that it's, it's a plague, it's a hellfire plague on our world. We give it a more comfortable name called sex trafficking to like not think about what the reality is. We hate it. We want it gone from our world. God also hates sex trafficking. Jesus hates sex trafficking, but he actually, he actually takes it more seriously than we do. Because, see, we want to get rid of sex trafficking. Jesus wants to get rid of lust from, from his world, right? He talks about the root, the root desire to use another human being for my personal gratification. Jesus is more serious than we are about evil in our world. See, we look out at our world and we, we see the ravage of racism and, and genocide that has resulted in recent history. We want that gone from our world. Jesus also wants that out of his world, but he's even more serious about it than we are, right? Because he doesn't want to just get rid of racism, right, and genocide. He wants to get rid of pride and contempt and rage from the human heart. You with me? See, what are genocide and sex trafficking? They're raging hellfires destroying our world, but they're ignited by these small sparks of these deep, rooted distortions in the human heart and mind. 
Jesus wants to get the hell out of his world, and he wants to get the hell out of you. And that's good news. It's good news, is it? It's good news, but it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it's sort of like, okay, I want God to get evil out of this world, but I want him to do it without having to get rid of me, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the, this is the hard truth of Jesus. It's like, we've met the enemy, and he is. That's not the greatest news to hear, but yet at the same time, it is. It depends on who says it to you, right? If somebody is who's on, intent on mowing you down with an M16 thinks you're the enemy, that's bad news. But if, if a surgeon, right, if a surgeon comes with a knife and he needs to cut you open to take out some life-threatening thing that's, that's poisoning your body, is that good news? Is it going to be painful? It's the story of the Bible. <laughs> it's the story of the Bible. So the story of the Bible, the gospel, is Jesus came to get the hell out of us. So does he accomplish this? So in other words, so the gospel isn't that I believe in Jesus and I'm declared perfectly righteous because of an imputed righteousness. No, I put my faith in Jesus and then Jesus starts the work of trying to get the hell out of me. Clearly it's not going to happen in this life. So then when I get to heaven, then finally he removes the hell out of me. But what if I don't believe in Jesus? Well, then I don't go to a place called hell. I just die in my hell because I'm living in that because the hell is never removed from me. Is that is that where this is going? He's not talking. I mean, he's not done anything to even come close. This is supposed to be fixing the gospel and he's not even come close to presenting anything that would even resemble the true gospel in any way, shape or form. He's not talked about putting your faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and our, your sins are paid for. And then, I mean, he did talk about Jesus being the sacrifice, but he didn't really talk about an imputed righteousness or anything along these lines. This seems to be a denial of hell, it, 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 the, uh, of hell being an actual place. Jesus is more serious about this than we are. And so how does, how does Jesus, the great physician, come to heal us and to get the hell out of us? He does it. It's, this, it's what Mark tells us. Just go finish reading the Gospel of Mark. Jesus lives this hell-free existence. He shows us what a human life is as God becomes human to actually be the kind of human that we are all made and called to be but perpetually fail to be. It's this hell-free life that only gives and that only loves, and that's only other-centered. And it's, act, it's so offensive and so scandalous and so repulsive to those around Jesus and what he calls out of people and how he calls people out for their religious hypocrisy and their pride and their rage and their anger. It's, it's the paradox of the gospel, is that God so loves and is committed to his broken world ruined by the hell that we've made here. He actually allows the hell that we've created to overwhelm him and to destroy him, right? He, allow, he allows the hell that we've created to exhaust its power on him. And we call this the, this the moment of the cross. And the moment of the cross is the healing, it's the paradoxical death and resurrection of Jesus and the death and resurrection of our, of our world. Are you with me? In Jesus, 
the whole train wreck of human history and its consequences of evil and of sin exhaust its power in Jesus' death. But because this God is so in love with his world and with these, these compromised, fractured, image-bearing human beings, he will not let hell get the last word. And the resurrection of Jesus is this moment of new life. It's a moment that speaks of God's love and eternal commitment to our good world. And the resurrection of Jesus is, represents this offer and this opportunity of life, of a hell-free existence in the present and on into the future. You guys with me here? A hell-free existence in the present. We can have a hell-free existence in the present. And hell is, is these negative things. Are, is, he, is he calling that we can reach a sinless perfection? He, he's not talked anything about an imputed righteousness. He's not talked anything about an imputed righteousness at all. No forensic justification, no imputed righteousness. It, it's just like Jesus satisfied or he absorbed the, the power of hell. So then I can now live a hell-free life. How do I, how do I live the hell-free life? Because he said now. So, so, so it's possible now not, not to have any, any sin. Uh, he's only got a couple of minutes here. Here we go. Repent and believe the good news. God wants to get the hell out of you. And that's the best news, right? It's the best news you could imagine. And it's also hard news to hear. And so how does the story of the Bible end? You know, I had, I had that image there in the video of, of heaven and earth coming together. But what I didn't address was this. What's, where does this have to go? It's got to get out of here somehow. And so go look at the last page of the Bible. Where, where and what is hell on the last page of the Bible? Hell is God's monument, as C.S. Lewis says, to human dignity and choice. If someone refuses to be healed by the great physician, God will honor that decision. But what God will not do is allow hell to continue ruining his good world. And so the image that the last page of the Bible uses is of the great new garden city of heaven and earth married together again, and hell is outside the city. It's outside the city. God, it, it's God's mercy to contain human evil and to not let it eternally ravage his good world and his good image-bearing humans. And for those who refuse to participate in God's recreation of heaven and earth, he honors that decision. They remain outside the city. Now, that, there's all kinds of details that we want to know that the Bible does not give us about this. What it does is it tells us good news about the person of Jesus. So, so hell, so hell's not a place. It's just the people are left outside of the city. And so the hell remains in them. Does it, rem I am really trying to follow this. I am really trying to follow this. So hell's not a place. But then at the end, hell is left outside the city because it's, but he seems to be implying that it's the hell inside the people. So these people live for eternity with hell inside of them. So they, do they have a different city? Do they have a different world? 
Like, do, uh, okay, let's continue. It tells us that, that Jesus is so committed to getting the hell out of his world and out of you that he lived for you, that he died for you, and that he was raised for you. Turn to him and believe the good news. How you guys doing? This is, a, this is the story the Bible is telling. And it's at the same time a challenging story that will still be challenging and offensive and difficult to talk about. But I'm telling you, it's a, it's a compelling story. Because your friend who doesn't believe in Jesus also wants this. Are you with me? You, your neighbor wants the same thing that God wants. Are you with me? Right? Now that's going to involve a whole lot of conversation. But I thought, this is a compelling story. Your neighbor wants the same thing as God wants? Depraved people want the same thing God wants? Depraved people want to be God. Redeemed people want to be God. The sinful nature doesn't want what God wants. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. No one seeketh after God. No, not one. Like, did he just forget like major sections of the Bible here? If we can, if we can help ourselves understand it. And, and you, you will not be compelled to share this story personally unless you actually experiencing the loving, healing power of Jesus begin to remove the hell from you and to give you new, new life. And so as we come to, you know, the conclusion of our gathering here, let's just, let's just focus right there. You know, we have this time and space to sing and to pray. And here's what I'd encourage you to do. I'd encourage you to, to get the names of some people that you love and that you care about. And don't, like, put them on your list. <laughs> just pray a blessing over them. And pray that God would open up an opportunity for you to simply ask them questions <laughs> about what they think and to just prepare that, that ground so that when the time is right and when the moment is right and when they want to receive it, that you can talk about how much Jesus loves them and what he did for them because that's the kind of God revealed in this story. Amen? Let me close in a word of prayer. I, I don't even know how to unpack it I don't even know what to say. Um, he, he, he seems to imply a God who doesn't know, didn't know what was going to happen. Everything happened. It wasn't his will. He seemingly implied almost, I guess, he's powerless. Um, I guess. He, he, he almost seemed to imply that. Um, and that the gospel really is more about Jesus coming to remove the hell from you, right? Um, he doesn't seem to indicate is he going to accomplish that? He, he seems to make it sound like that it's accomplishable, that it's possible that all the hell could be removed from you. So I, I don't know if he believes in the eradication of the old nature or not. He clearly stated hell is not a place. Hell is something we un unleash on earth. God did not create hell. And then he, but at the end, hell, hell is, is really, as he said, a monument to, to whatever the C.S. Lewis quote is. Again, he quotes C.S. Lewis. He doesn't quote the Bible. Um, it's really bizarre. He, he makes a reference to the end of the book of Revelation. But I, I would say this, that he seems to imply that hell is not a place these people will be in. Hell will be in these people because hell was not removed from them. 
So salvation is simply God removing the hell from you. It's not him imputing his righteousness to you or saving you by grace. It's him removing hell from. So basically salvation is simply the, uh, the, the process of God removing the sin inside of you. He, he, it's a completely, it's not God declaring you to be perfectly righteous and holy because of an imputed righteousness. No, it's God now saves you. And that means he removes hell from you so that now you'll be a hell free person. So the gospel is God's process of making hell free people. It, whoa, I've got to look something up here because this, if, if this guy's connected to the Bible project, this is, I want to know, does the Bible Project have a doctrinal statement? I'm going to put type in the Bible Project. It, it shows up quickly if you just even begin to type it. Um, I'm going to see about, I'm going to, the Bible Project shows up almost immediately. All right, I'm going to see if, it, if this uh, opens up here. Who we are, okay, um, our resources, our story, Timothy Mackey. I think that's the person who we just heard speak. All right. Um, let's see here. Do they have a doctrinal statement? You can you can obviously give them money. <laughs> you, you can give them money. <laughs> okay. Uh they say, uh, you can give them money. Okay, the Bible Project Statement of Faith. Here we go. Uh, okay, here. All right, uh, let's see. The, uh, they, they talk about, uh, I'm reading here some information about them. Okay, the Bible Project has received some criticism regarding the way they portray atonement. Some believe that they do not sufficiently emphasize God's wrath towards sin. As with any teaching, uh, users are wise to evaluate what they see and hear against what the Bible actually says. The Bible's project mission is biblically sound, and it seems the content they produce is genuinely helpful in furthering people's understanding of and engagement with God's Word. Please visit their website, so it, it just seems like a, a, a thing called the Bible Project doesn't appear to have a statement of faith. Um, I, I'm a little perplexed here. Why wouldn't they have a statement of faith? There's nothing here that gives them a state of faith on who we are. They do not give us anything. I mean, I guess in 2022, the average Christian doesn't care. Who cares what their statement of faith is? Who cares? That, that, I, I, I think now they need to produce a statement of faith. I, I think they do. I think they should be asked to produce a statement of faith. What do you believe about hell? What do you believe about salvation? What is, uh, what do you believe about the imputed? What do you believe about the atonement? What do you believe about imputed righteousness? What do you believe about propitiation? Because, I mean, this is supposedly about living in the gospel, and he just redefined, I think, even what the, the average church member would understand the gospel to be. Wow, what a crazy—that that did lead to a pretty dramatic conclusion. I'm sorry it required a power outage in the middle of this to accomplish, but we finished it. Three hours almost. 
Um, and uh, there you go. I, I don't know what to say. You, you, can, you can give me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Wow. What a... Yeah, he, he was just... There, he said enough troubling things, but just vague enough that he never was, he never really dogmatically laid it. I mean, I don't know. That, that one, that one is just troubling. And, and the lack of any, even a, a pr- attempt to try to give us any like scriptural, like there was no breaking down any text. There was no exegesis. There was no expounding anything. There was no context. There was, there was just nothing. I mean, I mean, he wants to talk about hell and he ignores every passage on the subject and goes to James. And then even that he misses, he didn't even say which translation he was using to try to come to the conclusion that he said about that passage in James, where we looked at everything and no one agreed with his translation or interpretation. So what a, what a crazy, crazy presentation. But we'll stop right there. Thanks for listening. Uh, Email me newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great day. God bless.